You're listening to the Core Life Training. What is it? Core Life Training Podcast. Of course it is. With Jeff Olson. Hey, what's up, my friends? It's Jeff with the Core Life Training Podcast. It's where we dig into the Bible, we get down with some killer tunes, and cool out with a tasty drink of choice. Welcome to episode number 14. So do you ever feel like God is kind of disappointed with you or like you're having a hard time making God happy or maybe you're having a hard time keeping God happy? Uh, Even after you confess your sins, maybe sometimes do you still feel guilty or have you ever felt like you need to somehow make it up to God when you sin? Like you have to go into the spiritual doghouse for like a few days. Do you ever feel like maybe you can't pray or expect a blessing until you've been more faithful in obeying the Lord? I know I have, and just about everybody I've ever taught has too. But how do feelings like that fit in with the biblical truth that God loves you? So many people have the right doctrinal belief about God, like they believe the right stuff about Him, but really struggle with a mental picture of a God who's judgmental or disappointed or just kind of distant. So God wants our heart above all things, but if we're ever going to do the great commandment and love God with all our heart, we really have to start by coming to grips with the love of God for us. So stick around, and I want to explain what I mean by coming to grips with the love of God. So what you're going to hear in this episode is more live audio that was recorded at a Core 2 class that I taught in Sisters, Oregon at Vast Church in 2017. As I said before, these episodes will be a little bit longer than normal. The biblical truths in here are just important enough that I don't really want to leave any of them out. I promise it's totally going to be worth your while. So why don't you grab a Bible, grab a notebook, and grab your drink of choice, and let's get down to business. So as I said, uh, God wants you to love him with all your heart, and your heart is a big, wide, deep thing, and there are a lot of affections that go with it, and God wants all of those uh, strongly moving in his direction. But as I said uh, just at the break, we're kind of starting backwards here. We're sort of starting with the idea that God wants me to love him when the Bible never starts that way, uh, the Bible actually starts with God loves you. Right? That's where the Bible starts. So uh, we'll look at just a few passages. First John chapter 4, verse 10. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. Where does, where does God start this relationship? Not that you love me, it's that I love you. It's not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is just is a, a word that means the sacrifice that satisfies the wrath of God, right? So when God pours his wrath out on his son Jesus in our place for our sins, God is now no longer in heaven angry at me and wrathful towards me because I, believe, I trust his promise, right? So Jesus took his wrath and his wrath as a propitiation is satisfied so that God's not bent out of shape at me. Now we'll talk about whether I feel that way or not in a minute. But this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. Verse 19, we love God because, 1 John 4, 19, what does your text say? We love God because why? We've learned lots of Bible truths, because we know we should, because he loved us first. Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, I didn't even give a rip about God. I couldn't care less about God. I loved me, I loved my idols, and I loved my sin, and yet God demonstrated his love for me. So it would be wrong, it would be unfair to demand for us to love God, to 
to stand there and say, love me, love me, love me, but I don't care about you. And God doesn't do that. The Lord starts with, I love you. And then says, the great commandment is to love me. Now, look, the truth is, all of us probably have a doctrinally sound belief about the love of God. You know what I'm saying? What I mean by doctrinally sound belief is that you'll pass your Bible quiz on this all day long. True or false? God loves you. Hey, A plus, man, awesome. You're going to nail the Bible quiz on the love of God. You can quote the Bible verses. I mean, I just quoted some of them. John 3.16, God loves the world, gave his only son. Psalm 103, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. I mean, like, name four verses that say God loves you. I'm, you know, most of you could probably nail that. We sing the songs, the old days, how deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure. I mean, those are the old. The old. Now, it's, now the songs are, we're going to dance in the river. Yeah, we're going to dance in there. So how stupid is that? Let's go back to some of the old songs. Like when we sang about the love of God for us. Now we're singing about wet, sloppy kisses and stupid things like that. Um, I know, but that's... Theologically, it's, it, theologically, it is horrible. We teach it in Bible studies. Ryan's a good pastor, so he teaches whenever he gets the chance that God loves people. When you go to an evangelism training seminar like in the old days, or if you were ever going to start talking with somebody about evangelism, you would start with, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, right? In other words, nobody believes that God hates them, right? Nobody's doctrinal statement says, God hates the world and has a horrible plan for their lives, okay? So, I'm not, well, I'm not at all dealing with the idea of do you know the truth here? When I say come to grips with the love of God for us, I, I, I in no way mean you need to learn some truths. Now, if you do need to learn those truths, that's fine. We'll, we're going over them right now. But most people assume that God loves them. That's, I mean, the average unbeliever assumes if there is a God, he's pretty much down with me. You know, like he pretty much gets where I'm coming from. And So look, we could all nail the quiz. We, doctrinally, we have the right belief about the love of God. That's not a problem. Um, but the truth is we all have a functional belief system as well. And what I mean by functional belief system, I mean the belief that I actually have to function with every single day, right? The doctrinal one I can write on the quiz, I get an A plus and I put it in the drawer and I pull it back out when somebody asks me what I believe. My functional belief is what I think about God when I'm actually dealing with him day to day, right? It's that mental picture or image of God that I have in my head as I'm dealing with him, or it's that inner voice or that inner MP3 player or that inner iPod voice in the back of my head that is God's voice as I'm dealing with him. That's the God I actually have to deal with day to day. It's not the God of my doctrinal statement, right? I, I get him out when somebody asks me for a resume, or, right? Or if you're checking out a church, you're asking for a doctrinal statement, And yet that church or a group of believers or an individual can have a functional belief that is quite different from the one that they believe doctrinally. So on the one hand, I can know that God loves me. I know that. I can ace that test. But I can also sense often that God is bent out of shape or disappointed or disapproving. I mean, you you pick the word that fits where you're coming from. I know God loves me, but I sense that he's rarely pleased. He's rarely pleased. Here, I mean, here's how this goes for, for me. Here's, here's my daily experience. And I pray it's not yours. If you're all reading this going, Psh, what's your problem, Olson? What? You need to go back to school or something. That's fine. Uh, but here's how this goes for me. Like, I, I sin. 
And how do you feel when you sin? You should feel guilty, right? I don't think anybody walks away from their sin going, man, that ruled. That was so awesome. I mean, we go into it thinking that rule, that's going to rule, right? If, if, yeah, we go into, so I go into letting you have a piece of my mind because you deserve it and you're an idiot and I'm mad. I go into it thinking this is going to make my world awesome. Here we go. Buckle up. Now, when you're done letting them have it, do you walk away going, man, whoo, I feel so great. That was awesome. No, I mean, if you get in a fight with your wife or your husband, it feels right to fight about it because I'm right and you're wrong and I, you're, I'm not getting my way and you're, you're here to give me my way. And then when it's all said and done, you just go, gosh, oh man. You should anyway. So you sin and then, then you feel guilt. And what do you do when you feel guilty? You confess your sins. Lord, I sinned again, again. The same one for the last 37 years. You know what it is, and I've promised and swore, but I did it again. I'm sorry, right? Please forgive me, right? And and it's an honest confession, okay? I'm assuming a good-hearted confession. I am sorry. I have contrition in my heart, Lord. Please forgive me. And then how do I feel? I still kind of feel guilty. I still sort of feel like um, I'm in God's doghouse for a little while. Like I need to sort of make it up to him. I, I mean, I can't. I can't really turn right around and ask God for a blessing, right? Because I just sinned and I got to read my Bible extra this week or pray more. And maybe by Thursday, if I sinned on Monday, maybe by Thursday, you know, and I, I better get it straight by Thursday because Friday there's a blessing I really want to ask for. Like I got an interview or something's coming up. Yeah, church is on Sunday and I got to sort of be, I got to get my sins done by at least Wednesday so I can go to church on Sunday and feel good about it. Okay, so... I feel guilty after I confess, and so what am I going to do? I'm going to try harder. Lord, okay, seriously, this time. I'm like, seriously, I'm not screwing around. Seriously. Now, I'm trying harder, but I'm also distancing myself from the Lord because I'm kind of in God's doghouse. How do you think that's going to go for me? Not well. What, what, what have I done in the next 37 seconds? Sinned again, right? And so then it's just rinse and repeat, just rinse and repeat. This is, am I the only one that has ever felt this way in life? Okay, this, I mean, this, I spent years, I have spent years, I still deal with this, right, as a, as a mental image. Not, not, look, man, I have degrees in this stuff. Like, I'll nail this on my quizzes, but my mental image of God. So I, I spent years and still deal with the issue of feeling like I am always just on the outside of the circle of God's love for me. And if I try real hard and I do my checklist real good and don't do the bad boy checklist better than I did last week, I can just kind of sneak in to the love of God. But I screw that up almost immediately, don't you? So guess what? I'm out. And my struggle is always to kind of just get back in, but I'm always out again. And that's kind of been my story. And then I just have had so many young people come to my office uh, and just share that same struggle. And then after I planted a church and started dealing with more older people, realizing, oh, older people who've been believers a long time actually struggle with this as well. And that, that experience, right, this, this mental and sort of internal voice experience of God is not a result of Scripture. Right, again, we've, we've nailed the Bible quiz. It's a result of our mental image of God. So we imagine God as a disapproving parent, right? The parent that 
always finds the, the B minus on your all A report card? Always finds the one thing you did wrong when you did 15 things right? I remember my dad was, uh, when I was 18, went to the Philippines to help build a Bible college over there on a, on a mission strip with our church. And, you know, my, my dad was kind of the guy that would find the one thing wrong out of all the things I did right. And, uh, you know, he was gone for a month. So I'm, I'm 18 in an apartment alone for a month. Now, I'm a believer, but it's still party time. Like, it's, it's, it's a believing party time, but it's still party time. So, you know, it's a, month, it's a month's worth of great time, whatever. About three or four days before my dad's supposed to come back, actually more like one or two days, what, what, what are you supposed to do? Hours. What's that? 12 hours. Right. The last 29 days. Right, you got to clean up. Yeah. So I clean the house, I clean the apartment, I vacuum, I scrub, toilets, showers, blah, blah, blah. Clean the house. Dad comes home, and I don't know exactly how this happened, but this is how I remember it. Right? I remember my dad walking in, and we might have had an hour's worth of conversation about stuff. I don't know. I remember my dad going, why didn't you take the garbage out? Like, you noticed the one thing that I didn't do. The disapproving parent. I have my doctrine of God, and when I read my doctrine of God in Scripture, my mental image is just kind of laid over the top of it. So I'm reading words about the love of God, but what I'm actually hearing in my head and experiencing in my mental image is, a disapproving parent. What about the God is the cop who's just, he's just looking to bust you, man. Right? What do you tell your kids when they start learning to drive? You just imagine Jesus is in the passenger seat. Or you, know, you, tell, you tell young people when they were going on, on dates, you tell the boys, hey, Jesus is in the back seat when you're taking that girl out. Now, what is Jesus doing in the car? He's got a stick and he's ready to smack you with it. He's not there to love you. He's not there to like be your friend. He's there to bust you when you screw it up, right? So Jesus is used as a negative motivation. Don't screw up or Jesus will smack you with his big stick. Maybe an image of a God who's kind of distant and doesn't really care too much until you screw it up. And I've had a lot of people uh, come and talk about feeling like God is distant until they screw up. And that comes from, you know, where do these images come from? They come from our family background generally. Experiences with our parents, experiences with other people who are in authority with us, but typically our, our family background teaches us. So, you know, these girls have dads that are just not paying too much attention until they screw up, or a kid has a dad that's just not all that involved until they, then all of a sudden dad's really involved. Well, how, how, how easy is it to just read that right over? I mean, God cares. I know God cares about me, but he's not really involved too much. But man, when I screw up, boy, he's right there. So this experience of something other than the love of God is not a result of our doctrinal belief. It's really a result of our functional belief system. And that comes really from a mental image from our parents. Maybe you learned it in youth group or something. You know, we use Jesus as a, we use making God upset as a motivational tool all the time with kids. You don't want to do that because God will be, you don't want to displease the Lord. You know, you're going to face God someday and you're going to have to give an account for all this and you don't want to have him run the video of your life, right? Because that'll just be embarrassing. Oh, man. So I know God loves me, but I usually sense that he's mostly disappointed. And now I want to walk through some Bible passages that actually tell the truth. And I drew some pictures for them, but I'm going to save them until we tell the stories. Uh, you think of John chapter four and the woman at the well. And Jesus is in the bad part of town. Uh, so he's in Samaria and it's where people don't believe correctly and because they don't believe correctly, they're naughty and 
you know, was, the Jews don't like that whole area. And so they would walk around it. But here's Jesus and his disciples walking right through the bad part of town. And he meets a woman who has come out to get water. And uh, Jesus gets in a conversation with her about water and living water. He says, you know, would you give me something to, you know, give me something to drink? And he's like, man, if you would have asked, I would have given you living water. And she's like, well, where the heck are you? You know, you had a bucket, you know. And he's offering her living water and she's not quite getting it. And he says, why don't you go home and, and ask your husband about it? And she says, I don't have a husband. Well, he's like, well, I know, right? You've had five and the dude you're with right now, he's, he's not your husband either, huh? So she's been through five husbands and is sexually involved with a guy that's not her husband. In modern slang, what, what do we call? What do we call a woman like that? I mean, I know this is church, right? So we can't really say these words. Harlot. Yeah, I mean, yeah, a harlot. Nice. Uh, right. A whore. A whore. A slut. A sleaze. Okay. I mean, the, the, like, just look in an, in the, in our honest, real world. Not your, you don't use those words, of course not. In the real world, that's what women like that get called. So here Jesus is with a woman like that. And he says to her, I'll give you living water. There's a list of sins that I totally understand, right? Like I I totally get it. But look, I've been faithful to one woman for 24 years almost now. Like, you know what I mean? Like she's doing the biggies. I don't do the biggies. She's doing the biggies and, and Jesus is giving her Living water. What about John chapter 8, the woman who was caught in adultery? You remember that story? So Jesus is hanging out, doing some teaching, and all of a sudden the Pharisees, the religious leaders, bring a woman out in front of him. She's caught in the act of adultery. Now, it is curious to me what the heck they're doing peeking in the window in order to catch her. Uh, You know, I I wonder if that's not sinful in and of itself. (laughs) But somehow they've caught her in adultery and they bring her out and they want to make an example. So here this woman is publicly shamed for doing one of the biggies. Right, she's cheating on her husband, caught in the act, sexually immoral, and now she's brought out in front of everybody to, to be made an example of. And they say, Jesus, the law of Moses says we should stone her to, to death. What do you say? Do you, Jesus, do you believe the Bible? Right, do you believe the law of Moses like we do? That's the question. And the, the text says that Jesus bends over and writes in the dust and he, he gets back up and he says, yeah, you're right. The law of Moses does say that. So whoever is without sin, go ahead. You cast the first stone. And then he bends back over to write in the dirt again. Now the Bible doesn't say what he writes. Do you want to know what he writes? I'll tell you what he writes. If I were making the movie of this, this is what he would write. So I don't, I don't know. I'm just speculating. He gets down in the dirt and it's, the Bible says he, they left from the oldest to the youngest. And he bends over and he looks over at Rabbi Yitzhak over there. And he writes Rabbi Yitzhak's name. And Rabbi Yitzhak goes, oh yeah, I better go. Rabbi Yehoshua. Oh yeah, I better go. Right? And he just writes, if I were making the movie, he's just writing their names from the oldest to the youngest. Bible doesn't say that, but it sounds cool to me. So the detail in my mind is that he writes their name, but then he writes their sin. Their sin too. I'm adding that to my story. That's adding to my movie. Bill me. Uh, So she, after they all leave, Jesus says, is there no one here to condemn you? Now, she's guilty of a biggie. 
And he says, is there no one here to condemn you? And she says, no, Lord, there isn't anyone. And he says, you're wrong. There is someone. It's me. Right? I'm here to condemn you. Is that what Jesus says in John 8? No. Sorry, Mike. (laughs) What does he say? He says, neither do I condemn you. Now look, Jesus, all through the Gospels, is hanging with the tax collectors. There are two phrases, two words that come after tax collectors all the time in the Bible. You know what they are? Tax collectors and what? Tax collectors and sinners. And the other most common one is tax collectors and prostitutes. And he's with them so much that he's accused of being the friend of sinners. Right? The Bible says he was called the friend of sinners. Now, this blows me away, but the people that are doing the biggies, they're doing the big ones. The worst of sinners experience nothing but the love and grace of the Lord, and I'm really not sure that he half likes me most of the time. And I'm trying. I'm not a sinner, I'm a child of God, and I'm not sure that he half likes me. And the truth is, I'd just rather be a sinner again so that I could know that he loves me. And how, how you view God here, again, now, I'm not working with your doctrinal belief system. I'm sure that's square. And if it's not square, we can straighten it up. But how you view God, your functional belief system, the image that you have in your mind, the MP3 message that's going in the back of your head, will either help you or hinder you from doing the great commandment, from loving God. So if... God is a disapproving parent or the cop who is looking to bust me or the, the, God who, the, the father who's distant and really only gets involved when I screw it up, which is often enough. But that's really when he cares is when I'm screwing up. I can never fall in love with that God. Now, I can obey him. I can try hard for him. I can do my checklist as best I can for him, but I can't love him. It's impossible if that's my view of God, my functional view of God. It's actually impossible to do the great commandment and fall in love with God. So what do I need to do then? We'll start into the what should I do stuff and we'll finish all of the what should I do stuff tomorrow. What should I I do? What I need to do is I need to battle my false view of God with the truth. So when I feel like God is mad at me, you know, in that cycle I've sinned and I've confessed and I've repented and I still feel like God's kind of bent out of shape even though I've already confessed. God, I, you know, I know you say you forgive me, but I kind of feel like you're mad. I've got to remember that 1 John 4.16 says God is love, not God is anger. So I feel like God is angry and I've got to battle that feeling. I've got to battle that sense. I've got to battle that MP3 player in the back of my head and say, nah, God is not angry. He's He's love. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones is another one of my favorite uh, preachers and writers. He's a great preacher of the 20th, probably the great preacher of the 20th century in London. And he wrote a book called Spiritual Depression. And the, the very opening of it is so awesome. He says, so, much of a, so, so many of us spend so much of our time listening to ourselves rather than speaking to ourselves. And he says, we need to take our souls into our hands and speak to them. So the psalmist says, why are you so downcast, O my soul? He's like talking to his soul. Why are you downcast? Put your hope in God, right? So, oh, I'm downcast. I'm bummed. God doesn't love me. It's never going to go. What is going on, soul? 
we used to talk about this all the time at Core Life Church, and people started talking about having to owe my soul myself, right? That's, I got to actually take my soul in a hand and speak some truth to it. So when I feel like God is mad, I have to owe my soul myself and say, no, 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 God is not mad, owe my soul. God is love, 1 John 4, 16 tells me. When I still feel guilty, when I still feel guilty, even though I've confessed and repented, I have to remember Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None, zero. I feel condemned most of the time. I feel like God has basically been out of shape most of the time. And yet the Bible tells me none, zero, zip, zilch, nada. That's what the Greek word means, none. Not a little, not some. Well, not none for those guys, but you're really a dork, so there's plenty for you, right? You're definitely the exception to the rule here. Nope, none. And I've got to tell myself that. No, there isn't. I know you still feel guilty, oh my soul, but you're not. And God's not in heaven holding that over your head, even though it feels that way. When I feel, still feel sinful or dirty, you walk away from your sin and nobody goes, whew, I sure feel clean. That's great. I still feel sinful and dirty, and yet I got, I have, I've got to battle that sense with something like Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. The Lord says to Israel, now again, just remember this. Is, the, the opening chapter of Isaiah is all about Israel's centuries of idol worship and intermarrying, and sexual immorality, and more idol worship, and offering their children as offerings to the god Molech. And Israel's done this for centuries. And Isaiah 1 opens with that. And the Lord's like, man, even a donkey gets it with his master. Like, you have never honored me once. And yet the Lord says, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, I will make you white as snow. Look, man, I don't have... I don't have an, I don't, I don't worship Molech. I certainly don't offer my kids a sacrifice. Like, I'm not doing what Israel was doing. And yet I still feel dirty. And God says, I can make you white as, white as snow. When was the last time you felt white as snow? I mean, mostly it's like a grayish, brownish. I don't know, light brown, gray. In my best days, that's how I'm feeling. But I got to battle that with the truth. White, the Lord says, white as snow. I don't roll out of the rack feeling that way. I've got to speak that. And I'm not talking about like happy self-talk. I'm talking, I bring the scriptures to bear on my soul here. Right? So you notice I'm not just saying, hey, think happy thoughts and look in the mirror and say, God loves you and you're good enough. And I'm saying you speak scripture to your soul. Right? So is your head involved in this? Absolutely. Should you be reading your Bible? Absolutely. Why? To make God happy? No, to get your head and heart straight. When I feel like God wants things that are good for me, but not good, you know what I mean? Good for me is like a penicillin shot in the rear. Like, it's not fun. Nobody likes it, but it's good for you. You ever get the feeling that God wants good things, that, things that are good for me? Oh, he's going to put me through tests and trials and difficulties because they're good for me. Oh, Awesome. But he doesn't want like good things for me, you know, like a new car or, I don't know, a week of peace at work with my dumb boss who's an idiot. And he doesn't want good things for me. He doesn't want to just bless me, right? He doesn't want me to be happy. He wants things that are good for me. I got to remember like Romans 8, 32, man, if he'll give us, if he'll give us his son, what is God going to withhold from me? What good thing is God going to withhold, right? James 1, 17, every, every good and perfect gift comes from above 
Well, he's not giving many to me. He's giving me penicillin shots, spiritual penicillin shots in the rear. Like, I got to take my soul into my hand and say, no, the truth is something other. I know it, right? I, I know the truth. I nail the quiz. But I need to take my feelings in hand and speak the truth. Psalm 103. No, Jeff, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. Now, you won't always feel that way, right? You're speaking the word of God to your soul. You gotta speak it because you won't always feel that way. And even when you're speaking it, you won't always feel that way. So you have to have faith, right? That's another affection of the soul. You've got to trust God's word. And your faith has got to be strong. So when you still feel guilty, you got to say, God, I still feel guilty right now, but your word, Romans 8, chapter, one, or chapter 8, verse 1, says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I still feel condemned. I always feel condemned, but you say I'm not. So I guess I'm just going to trust your word instead of mine, even though it feels weird to me. So uh, instead of going to the doghouse, I'm going to come pray to you. I'm going to act like you love me. I'm going, to, I'm going to walk with you today, not trying to make it up to you. I'm going to walk with you today like you love me and want to bless me, even though I just sinned 37 seconds ago. I'm going to take it by faith. I feel condemned, but I'm going to trust you, not me. When I feel like I'm still dirty or mostly dirty, Lord, I still feel dirty, but you say white as snow, so I guess I better take you at your word instead of taking my dumb inner MP3 player for its word. I'm going to trust you, not me. And in the end, what that looks like, just to be honest for me, what that looks like is running through all that mentally, speaking all that to my own soul, telling God I'm going to trust that, and then it really gets put to the test in how I live that day. Am I going to go read my Bible extra to sort of make God happy to earn my way back into his good graces? Am I going to not pray for a couple days until I've really not sinned so egregiously? And then I'll pray when I've kind of done good for a couple days? Like, that's, that's the test of whether we're trusting. Will I walk out with God today? Lord, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm coming to church and I'm going to worship you. I sinned this morning. But I'm coming to church and I'm going to worship. Lord, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to speak about Jesus to my friend at work, I just sinned this morning and I don't deserve your blessing on it, but I'm just going to do it and I'm going to trust that you, you love that person and want them to be saved. And the trust part really just means I'm, I'm walking out with God today. I'm not going to the doghouse for a while. When we're in the doghouse, we're trying to make it up to the Lord and we're expecting that he's not going to do good for us until we get it straight. That is from the pit of hell. All right, that's a lie from Satan himself. And it's got checklists attached to it. Your church tradition has its checklist, right? Back in the old days, it was don't play cards, don't go to movies, wh- whatever. Your bad boy list, don't listen to secular music, blah, 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 don't smoke, don't this. Your good boy checklist, what, what was it? Read your Bible every day? Was it, of course, every day. It's the Bible, right? Can't skip a day. How long should I pray? Well, at least an hour. I mean, Martin Luther prayed for two hours every morning. We've all heard that stuff. Right? So we all have our checklists attached to this. And we got a mental image that plays right into it. And we've just got to take our, our own soul in it. In other words, we have to come to grips with the love of God. I know we can ace the quiz. But that truth has got to sink deep down 
into our souls. All right, dig it, man. I hope that was helpful for you. That is stuff that totally blew me away in my own life. Uh, it took me a long time of studying scripture and really working through my own my own feelings and, and what I believe about things to really come to grips with what it means that God loves me. Uh, still work through it to this very day. And God has got me on that journey of growth, really trusting what the word says about him and his love for me over how I feel about it at any given moment. So in a live class, we have a lot of time for questions and conversation. If you have any questions about what I'm covering, uh, if I'm not being clear or you just want to talk about it, I would love it if you'd email me at jeff at corelifetraining.org, or you could message me at the Core Life Training Facebook page or on Instagram. I really would love to interact with you on this stuff if you're interested. And last thing I want to remind you about the brand new live class I'm going to be teaching here in Gresham on the book of Isaiah. It's three hours long, 6 to 9 p.m. Sunday night, November 17th at the Hoppy Brewer. Man, a Hoppy Brewer in downtown Gresham. I want to help you understand how the book of Isaiah fits into the story of scripture, its key themes, and what it has to do with real life. You can get $30 off the price of the course if you register by Sunday, October 27th. I'm going to extend that deadline a little bit because I want you to get in on this thing. Registration is up online. Seating's limited. I've spent a ton of time on this class, and I know that you're going to have a deeper understanding of one of the most important books in scripture when we're done, and I'd love to see you there. You can go to corelifetraining.org slash Isaiah for all the details and registration, and I'll leave that link in the show notes. Thanks for checking out this episode. Don't forget after the outro is the drink of choice and your metal moment if you dig it. My name is Jeff Olson. I teach the Bible, and I will check you later. Right on, man. Thank you for sticking around after the outro. I want to give you this week's drink of choice, this week's metal moment. Uh, our drink of choice this week is, well, honestly, it's orange juice. It's freaking orange juice. Why is orange juice our drink of choice? Because I'm feeling a little bit under the weather right now. I'm trying to knock in some extra vitamin C so I can knock out whatever it is that I'm feeling. So I'm just kind of pounding the orange juice right now. Uh, maybe later tonight, it's Thursday night at the Hoppy Brewer. Firestone Walker is there for a tasting event. Maybe I'll sneak out tonight and grab a hold of that. But right now, the drink of choice is orange juice. And your metal moment is coming from Holy Grove. Again, one of my all-time favorites, local Portland band. I love these guys a ton. Got to see them just recently over the summertime with my daughter Riley up in Tacoma, Washington. It was just a quick daddy-daughter trip for her very first metal show. Holy Grove always kills it live. I mean, they just always kill it. But this time I was struck by how much Andrea Vidal, who is the vocalist for Holy Grove, I was struck by how much she is a total freaking boss. Like she has developed such a confidence on stage as a front woman over the last few years of touring. The band is tighter than ever. They're freaking heavier than ever too. If you ever get a chance to see them live, you got to go check it out. I'll go with you if you want. Uh, and also go for sure, go to their Bandcamp page and get their music. Uh, so here's a track called Caravan from their live EP, Holy Grove, live from the world famous Kenton Club. This was a benefit recording and uh, it was done here in Portland. And if you've ever been to the world famous Kenton Club, you might wonder what it's world famous for. It's basically a little dive bar in, in a hole in a wall. For sure, it's world famous for their tater tots. Those rule. Uh, but it's a killer venue for a show. If you ever get a chance to go, check it out and uh, grab some tots while you're down there. 
So here's Caravan by Holy Grove. I want you to grab your drink of choice, kick back, crank this one up, and I will check you later. <laughs> 